Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lily. Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. This is a special edition in collaboration with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. Keisha N. Blaine teaches African-American and gender and women's history at the University of Pittsburgh. Her book, Set the World on Fire, Black Nationalist Women and the Global Struggle for Freedom, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press, tells the story of an overlooked group of black women leaders in the aftermath of the decline of Marcus Garvey's black nationalist movement of the 1920s. Building on numerous religious and political ideologies, Garveyite women organized black workers from the Mississippi Delta to Harlem and built transnational alliances in the pursuit of global black liberation and nationalism. They followed strategies such as the Greater Liberia Bill, seeking funding from the U.S. government for black immigration to Africa. In doing so, they formed unlikely alliances and remained outside the established civil rights organizations, tapping the frustrated aspirations of thousands of African Americans in mid-century America. Over a period of four decades, they never gave up on their dream of a return to Africa and building a black nation recognized on the international stage. Set the World on Fire offers a continuous link between the nationalism of the Garvey movement and black power of the 1960s, in which women were key. Here is my conversation with Keisha Blaine. Now let me introduce you to the author, Keisha Blaine. Hello, Keisha. Hi, Leanne. Keisha, your, your book places African-American women in a transnational frame in their struggle for freedom and equality. And I love that because I'm all about transnational history and about really making the connections between what's happening in the United States and what's happening all over the world on a lot of different things. But this one's particularly very interesting. Before we start getting into the book, what I want to know is, how, who, what's your background? Why did you write this book? And why this topic and how did you get to the topic? So I'm currently a professor of history uh, at the University of Pittsburgh, and I completed a Ph.D. in history at Princeton University. Uh, And just to take a back, a step back a bit, I attended uh, Binghamton University as an undergrad, and that's where I ultimately decided to pursue this topic. I took a class on global black social movements. And one of the things that happened in the class is that I started reading so many amazing books and articles about black politics, global black politics. And I constantly kept asking the question, where were the women? I wanted to understand more about women's politics. I wanted to know more about women's ideas. And in so many ways, the book started 
during that, you know, during those early, early years where I started asking these critical questions, I ultimately went on to uh, write a dissertation on Black nationalist women's politics and then transformed it uh, into the book, Set the World on Fire. And so I would argue that in so many ways, the, the book uh, is what you might think of the, as the answer to many of the questions that I started asking several years ago uh, as an undergrad student. Well, you know, uh, what you're saying rings true to me because I've, I've got a field in women and gender studies, and I also spent a lot of time thinking about African-American politics globally and in, in the United States, and you're right. Uh, you don't, you see the men, you hear a lot about the men leaders, but you don't hear a lot about the women. Or if you hear about the women, it's usually to try to say, well, women didn't really have much of an opportunity. So let's go into... Um, why have women been overlooked in the historiography of the Black Freedom Movement? So there are several reasons. I think, particularly when you when you uh, think about Black nationalist politics, I think it's important to remember that by and large we're talking about a movement that, in and of itself, the movement is masculinist. The movement is male dominated, and so uh, as we think about Black nationalist movements and we write about Black nationalist movements. Part of the challenge is, as historians certainly, is to be able to tell the story in a way that in so many ways um, I think is somewhat different to the, the, the general narratives and the representations of these movements. So that's one thing, and, and I have said this many times before, that of course the kind of scholarship that we produce is in many ways a reflection of the society in which we live. And so um, we live in a patriarchal society, and and of course, the kinds of histories that we write tend to reflect that, and that's certainly one of the reasons why many of these narratives tend to um, de-emphasize women's voices, women's activism. Um, but to be sure, I think we're making good progress. I think my book is certainly one of many uh, important books on the topic, even over the last few years that have centered women's ideas, women's voices. We know, of course, the, the work of Robin Spencer, the work of Ashley Farmer, uh, as just two examples of books that are grappling with um, women's ideas and certainly the topic of gender. And so I'm excited to be part of that conversation. Now, the women that you deal with are women who are really daughters of what Marcus Garvey's nationalist movement in the early 20th century. So for people who don't know, tell us about what that movement was and what were its goals and what happened to it. And so the book centers um, several organizations, but certainly the first one that I discuss is the Universal Negro Improvement Association, or UNIA. And this is an organization that was established uh, in Jamaica in 1914. One of the things that I ultimately center in the book is the fact that, of course, we certainly do credit Marcus Garvey for his involvement in the organization, and we certainly acknowledge his role as a founder, but I do emphasize the fact that we also have to credit Amy Ashwood, uh, who would ultimately go on to become uh, his first wife. And Amy Ashwood must be credited as a co-founder of the UNIA. And this organization as I describe in the book, is a Black nationalist organization, which means several things. They're certainly thinking about universal Black liberation. They're, th they're thinking about the importance of Black people across the diaspora, really coming together, working together 
to improve uh, social and economic conditions for Black people across the globe. Uh, and they're really concerned about establishing an autonomous Black nation state. And so one of the fundamental goals of the UNIA, certainly um, in the early uh, 20th century, was to try to create a space where Black people would have full autonomy, where, where Black people would be able to uh, build um, a space uh, for themselves uh, to advance the race. And so there are several attempts made to create such a space uh, in Liberia. Uh, and so I emphasize several key uh, tenets um, of Black national thought uh, in the book, and that's certainly uh, evident in the Universal Negro Improvement Association. So that is one, the idea of um, Black immigration or relocating to uh, the African continent. Uh, the second is uh, Black self-sufficiency, uh, also Black political self-determination, Black pride, Black unity, these core ideas are central to the UNIA as they are central to several other organizations that I discussed in the book. Now, what was the place of women in the, the Garvey nationalist movement? What was their place there and what role did they play? And so women played um, a number of roles. And one of the things that I talk about in the book is that on the one hand, I do think it's important to acknowledge that uh, the organization certainly had a patriarchal um, sort of framing and and, organi and and the way that it was organized, it was organized in such a way that um, women had to answer uh, to the men in the organizations. And even though there were uh, separate um, divisions, for example, for women to be involved and to be active as leaders in the movement, again, they had to answer to men uh, in the organization. And so because of that structure, I do emphasize um, the patriarchal nature of the organization. At the same time, as I explain uh, in the book, even though women uh, had to answer to men in the organization, and even though we can certainly talk about patriarchy, we can talk about the, the, the ways in which um, women were marginalized in some ways, we also have to acknowledge that the organization uh, provided a crucial space for Black women too. Uh, so one of the things I emphasize is the ways that the UNIA uh, provided a platform for Black women to really develop uh, organizational as well as uh, leadership, organizing and leadership skills uh, in the movement. And in some ways, the UNIA was certainly more progressive than other organizations of the period insofar as women were, were still somewhat visible. And, and so, for example, um, women who were involved um, and the Black Cross nurses uh, were certainly uh, involved in community efforts and, and were visible to members of the community. Uh, you know, they would even walk down um, the streets of Harlem, for example, in various parades. And, and so there was, there was certainly um, the, the face of the movement in, in many ways, uh, even as they dealt with the kind of internal dynamics. So, so all that is to say that their relationship and involvement in the movement were certainly complex. You can see the ways in which they were marginalized, but you can also see the ways in which they were um, al also uh, given opportunities to, to lead and, and to develop uh, certain skills that they ultimately carried over into the 30s, 40s, and 50s, as I explain in the book. What happened to the UNIA as a movement? I mean, what happened? Because your book spends the rest of the book is really about other organizations that have, uh, uh, several women started. Um, so can you talk to me about, can you talk about a little bit about what happened to that movement? Why did it, did it fizzle out? Did it just morph into something else? 
So several things happened. I think it's important to understand that when we talk about the UNAE, um, on the one hand, we're talking about well, we're talking about international organizations, so that's important to emphasize. And we're talking about an organization with divisions all across the United States, with divisions all across the African diaspora. And so um, in answering the question of what happens to the movement, I think it's important to, to uh, emphasize the ways in which the movement ultimately goes through uh, a period of decline. And just to clarify, what I mean uh, is a period of decline insofar as we're talking about the membership of the organization. And so what we find is that uh, ultimately established in 1914, and then uh, the organization moves uh, from uh, Jamaica, the headquarters moved to, to Harlem. We see a peak, uh, certainly a, a peak moment uh, leading up to, um, I would say 1927. Um, and that becomes a, a, a pivotal moment because Number one, Marcus Garvey certainly um, ends up facing a number of problems uh, in the organization, uh, but also um, FBI efforts to, to suppress the movement lead to a decline in membership. And then when he is ultimately uh, deported from the United States um, back to Jamaica, that becomes another hit for the organization. Uh, what happens then is that in so many ways, uh, historians will, will argue that this is by and large, a moment of decline because the movement sort of fizzles out. What I emphasize in the book is that even though we see lots of people leaving the UNIA, what they do is they carry the ideas into or into several other organizations. Some people do stay in the UNIA, um, you know, even struggling chapters, they continue to work uh, towards Black nationalist goals. And so, so part of it is a story about how organizations go through these cycles, you know, of, of growth, but also these cycles of decline. What is powerful, though, in the narrative that I tell is that even as organizations shift um, and they go through all of these phases, the ideas remain constant and people carry these ideas over um, from one organization to the next. And, and so that's where you see um, certainly the power of the UNIA ideologically far beyond the limits of the, the sort of formal structures of an organization. And I think that that is a very important point, that the, the ideas of this, uh, the UNIA what were more powerful than the organization itself, and that it, it was amazing how far, how many decades this, uh, this these ideas kept, you know, uh, going. Uh, you talk about several women uh, who emerge out of this uh, these set of ideas, really, and uh, you talk about Mitty Maud Lena Gordon and Celia Jane A Allen and Jackis Garvey, uh, many uh, and other other women who began to really uh, carry these ideas forward and they establishing their own organizations, their own campaigns, their own uh, forward movement for the ideas, particularly the idea of, 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 of a homeland for uh, African-American and for people all over the black diaspora. So the ideas are not just about that, but they're also ideas that are wrapped around religious ideology, gender ideology, and what was interesting to me is that they begin to lead organizations in which uh, they're the leaders, but at the same time, they're advocating for male, black male leadership. Right. 
And that's one of the fascinating aspects, I think, of studying Black nationalist politics. In the book, I, you know, I struggled, I think, throughout the entire process of doing the research and even writing the book. I struggled with ways in which to talk about these women's um, sort of feminist politics. And so many people would, would constantly ask me, well, are these women feminists? Are they feminists? Uh, and, and the answer to that question was a difficult one because I could certainly point to the ways in which they challenge um, patriarchy, uh, certainly provide lots of examples of that. And But then I could also point to the ways in which they reinforced uh, and, the, and, and the ways in which they were complicit in some of these same ideas that they challenged, right? And so that becomes uh, something that uh, we see central to the story. And you're absolutely right. Someone like Midi Marlena Gordon establishes uh, this organization, the Peace Movement of Ethiopia. Uh, she is the founder. She's the leader. But even through that process, uh, she... Uh, ultimately allows, in the constitution of the organization, I talk about this strange clause where um, it's very clear, uh, it's, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but it said something to the effect that, uh, that women could only maintain leadership positions uh, if there is, uh, if, if, if we can't find a man to do the job, right? I mean, and those kinds of examples speak to the ways in which women we're really trying to grapple with both feminist ideas, but also nationalist ideas, which in some ways um, represented a tug of war ideologically. Sometimes they went in one direction, sometimes they went in another direction, but it does ultimately capture, I think, the complexity of black politics, certainly uh, in the 20th century. And these women's stories help us to see how people try to negotiate um, these ideas. Uh, and, and also how they change ideas over time, right? And so, uh, as you see in the book, by the time we get to the 50s, some of these women are thinking differently. Uh, and as, you know, historical developments take place, they begin to, to see the world differently, they respond differently. With time, their ideas change as well. Well, I'm wondering um, what kind of hit me, you didn't really address this, but it, it reminded me of the maternal feminism of Latin, in Latin America that these women were sort of operating as maternal feminists. <laughs> in other words, they, they were, they're doing their role as mothers in, in encouraging the race, encouraging men, encouraging, you know, people and nurturing the movement and nurturing ideas. Um, and, and that kind of seems to explain, in my mind, uh, how they could do it. Is there a sense that they saw themselves in sort of a more maternal role towards the movement? I think some women certainly did. And, and one of the fascinating aspects, I think, of the book, and certainly for me as I did the research, is that here you have a group of women who certainly agree on some of the core tenets, of course, of Black nationalist politics. But they, but they don't always agree, and they don't always agree on um, when it comes to, to strategies, they oftentimes don't agree on how things should be done. And, and so some women do in fact practice uh, what you, you're absolutely right. You can see the parallel to Latin America. You can see the ways in which some of these women practice a kind of maternal, a maternalist um, feminist politics. But then uh, some women uh, did not and, and some women approached, approached it differently. Some women, even in their writings were very overt uh, to emphasize uh, Black women's leadership roles. And one could argue 
uh, you certainly see a more uh, robust kind of feminist politics and feminist tone in, in some writings and in other cases, I couldn't find um, evidence of that uh, in other women's writings. So what's fascinating is at the one hand, uh, these women coming together ideologically under this umbrella of, of black nationalism, but not necessarily in full agreement about the ways in which they would advance their goals. Um, and, and I think that, again, right, speaks to the complexity of Black politics, but it helps us see the various strategies and tactics that uh, Black people employed uh, in the struggle for Black liberation in this period. The other thing that uh, talk about, I want to talk about is the, the name of this organization, the EME, which is the Peace Movement of Ethiopia. What is, what is Ethiopia as, as a concept? I know it's not just about a, a country. It's it's more than that. It's an idea. So what is this idea of Ethiopianism and how did it relate to 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 African-Americans in the United States? Right. And so the first thing to emphasize is that, of course, this is an organization, a peace movement of Ethiopia. This is an organization that's established in 1932. And this is a, a critical moment. Uh, as we know, only in a few years, uh, by 1935, uh, Italy uh, invades Ethiopia. And, and so we can certainly talk about uh, Ethiopia um, as a nation, as being central to this um, dialogue um, about Black, Black nationalist politics. But you're absolutely right. What's fascinating is that when Mitty Madlina Gordon establishes this organization in 1932, she's not actually thinking about Ethiopia, the nation. She's thinking about uh, Ethiopia more as a symbol, um, really a symbol for, for, for Africa in, 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 in a general sense. And it speaks to um, these ideas that certainly are inspired. I mean, these are race redemption ideas uh, derived uh, really from the Bible and, and many of these activists would would uh, quote uh, verses uh, from from Psalms, uh, emphasizing uh, the ways in which uh, Ethiopia shall stretch forth her hands onto God. And so that idea for them was one that spoke to this idea of African um, redemption, the notion that ultimately uh, colonialism would come to an end, uh, that Black people would be liberated, and that it was divinely ordained that they would be liberated. Uh, and so Ethiopia then, um, as certainly the way it's used in 1932 by women like Midimadu Gordon and all the other women who were involved in her movement, uh, it, it really just speaks to their their uh, anti-colonial position. It speaks to their vision of uh, universal Black liberation. It speaks to their vision of Black unity and the ways in which people of African descent would come together uh, wherever they reside to challenge racism, to challenge imperialism. Uh, that is what Ethiopia um, certainly meant to them when they used it in 1932. And of course, like I said, it would come to mean a lot more as the organization progressed. Uh, but that's certainly crucial to this dialogue about Black nationalist politics. Ethiopianism certainly is fundamental to that. Now, these women uh, who are promoting uh, the idea of Ethiopianism, basically, it's, which is a, a set of ideas about uh, the future of uh, African people, uh, they uh, who are they appealing to? Because at one point, you, I think you mentioned in your book, I think it was... At one point, they had half a million people in on membership. Is that is that 
Did I read yes. that right? And, and so I was thinking particularly about uh, a, a back to Africa, essentially a back to Africa petition that these women um, launched in the early 1930s. And so the idea was getting people to rally around and in support of uh, Black immigration, uh, presenting to um, Black people. I mean, and again, this is early 1930s. This is the, the Great Depression saying, if you want to improve your social and economic uh, conditions, you have to ultimately leave the United States. And, and of course, these women would have argued, and as I explained in the book, they argued that the United States was irredeemably, irredeemably racist, that it, ultimately there was no future um, in the United States because uh, racism was so embedded uh, in the history and the culture. And the idea was, uh, if you wanted a better life for yourself or your children, you would in fact embrace um, this, this idea of leaving entirely and going uh, to specifically Liberia is what they're thinking about at the moment in which they launched this petition. And so they pull people together. Uh, it's a very extensive organizing effort, as I explain uh, in detail in the book, uh, in order to find all of these people who would sign a petition in support of uh, leaving the United States. And then they ultimately sent this petition to FDR uh, asking for federal uh, support to make it possible for those who wanted to leave the United States to be able to leave. As I explained in the book, it, it didn't um, work out, but they kept trying and trying. And, and so who did they appeal to? Well, primarily uh, you know, people who were struggling to make ends meet. And so it's not surprising that this was a movement of the black masses. Uh, and even though there were some people who supported this idea uh, from various social classes, as I explained in the book, it was largely a movement that captured the imagination of, um, you know, people who uh, were struggling financially, people who were um, impoverished, people who were what you, you know, you can describe as working poor. At this time, they certainly found this message appealing and they signed their names, uh, at least as a gesture of their willingness to leave the country if the opportunity presented itself. So how much they, did, did people know or even these leaders know about Liberia? So they, they didn't know a whole lot. And, and of course, one of the challenges um, with this whole movement, as I point out in the book, is that here you have a group of activists who were certainly imagining and hoping that if they would simply relocate to Liberia, their life will be better. And that, you know, they imagined that, that if they showed up uh, in Liberia, they would find open arms, right? And they had this vision of Black unity that would extend across the diaspora. Of course, as I point out in the book, it was far more complex. On the Liberian side of things, uh, I, you know, I, I found all of these letters uh, from Liberian politicians who were very critical of these women, critical of the movement. On the one hand, they would publicly say, yes, you're welcome to come here. Of course, anyone can come to Liberia. Uh, but behind the scenes, they would actually say, well, we don't want these people coming here. This is a problem. We should probably do everything in our power to, to block them from coming in. And it speaks to the complexities of, of I think, um, diasporic uh, networks. And, and I talk about even this, the concept of black internationalism and the ways in which we always, we often imagine that, that people of African descent would, would come together and unify and be in harmony always, but that's not always the reality. I mean, sometimes there are deep divisions and sometimes uh, people uh, do in fact respond 
and resist efforts to to unite uh, for a whole range of different reasons. And so, you know, these women didn't know a whole lot. I mean, they certainly tried to learn more, but they didn't know a whole, a whole lot about Liberia. And that certainly caused complexities and problems in the movement. Their, not, their lack of knowledge meant that they assumed, for example, that Liberia would be a place um, thriving economically at that time, which in fact it wasn't. So they were, the, the part of the deal was that they were trying to get uh, the U.S. government to not only uh, to help them fund this, this uh, many men, whoever wanted to go to Liberia, which meant they wanted to be paid something, reparations you could call them, uh, to go to Liberia. So they were going to go into the country with some resources. Uh, and I'm just, I'm just kind of wondering about how they, did they not understand, I guess they didn't understand that they were really African-Americans and that that American part of them <laughs> was not necessarily the same, the, the same cultural uh, milieu of the people who were in Africa. Exactly. That's one of the, the things that I um, emphasized in the book is just, you know, the ways in which they presented themselves. And so many of these women in their writings would, would say, um, you know, and there were sometimes they would say we are Liberians. I mean, they would, they, we, they would, they would embrace that identity or they would say that we are um, Americans of African extraction. So that was a, a popular phrase that came up in many of their writings. And so for them, it was about emphasizing African heritage. That was very important to them. Uh, at the same time, as I put on the book, I think, um, and, and to be fair, there were moments where they realized the the tensions. And, and so just as a, a quick example, you know, Minnie Maudlina Gordon, um, she, uh, with her organization, they raised funds in order to send two representatives to Liberia uh, in the early 1930s. And the idea was that they would go and they would take a look at the land and they would make, you know, they would uh, have these meetings, they would form these networks in order to prepare the way for people who wanted to relocate there. And that particular trip, I think, also uh, revealed the tensions and spoke volumes because sure enough, when these two representatives went to Liberia, they realized that one, the conditions weren't what they imagined, but they also realized that it, they didn't, that they did not have a full understanding um, of the culture and they didn't have a full understanding of, of the people and the place. And, and you can see uh, some of the, the surprises, if you will, you know, in their own writings about how they would uh, be surprised by their interactions and the things that they would see and, and the ways in which uh, their experience in Liberia uh, was certainly very different than what they imagined it would be. And so that is part of, I think, the fascinating um, aspect of this story is that it's about the ways that these women confront Africa, both real and imagined, right, and the place or the space that they imagined in their mind uh, versus the, the place or the space as it as it were uh, in the 1930s, you can see that tension coming through at various junctures. Now, what's interesting about them too, also, is that they would imagine they imagined they were against like uh, white imperialism and anti they were anti-colonialist uh, colonialists, and they were trying to be in solidarity with the African people who were trying to throw off anti-colonialism later on. But at the same time, they also were sort of imperialistic in their own way because they thought we're going to go over there to Liberia and we're going to modernize Africa. We're going to sort of civilize them. We're going to share with them 
what we know are basically our American ways. <laughs> so there's a contradiction there between being in solidarity with the Africans at the same time you, you are thinking you're going to go over there and modernize them and civilize them. Exactly. I mean, I think, I think well, well, one of the things that made it all uh, so exciting for me as a writer and certainly as a researcher is that I was constantly grappling with all of these complexities. I think it's only made for a very interesting narrative uh, to, to center uh, the complexities and the ways in which, on the one hand, as you said, uh, and I talk about it too, right, the ways in which ideas um, about liberation and ideas, uh, anti-colonial ideas stood side by side um, with imperialist ideas as well. And so I, I think immediately to an interesting um, poem that I cite in the book uh, where one of the women ultimately said something to the effect that no one will rule my people, but a man who looks like me, right? And, and in that expression, she was ultimately saying, well, we're certainly against, you know, imperialism and we're certainly against white people, um, you know, ruling and, and dominating uh, these spaces. But at the same time, we can do it. And, and somehow if we do it or if we come in and, and we bring these ideas and, and, and we try to sort of impose our will, it's not so bad if we do it uh, as opposed to if white people do it. I mean, of course, there are so many problems with that framing, but, but that is, again, one of the examples of the complexities and the contradictions of Black nationalist politics, particularly in this moment, uh, we see those tensions coming to the surface. And, uh, and I talk a, a lot about the ways in which, even as these women are, are organizing, trying to go to Liberia, as you say, they're, they're imagining the way that they could bring modernity. They're imagining the ways in which they could make it a better place uh, as opposed to working or imagining how they would work with librarians uh, to uh, to do what librarians would want to do, right? As opposed to imposing their will. So you see these these tensions come up time and time again uh, in these narratives. Now, Celia Jane Ad Allen uh, went to the South to recruit people or to, you know, for this project. And what was the role of Black churches in the South? Because these movements really worked uh, a lot in the South. Uh, what was the role of the Black church in spreading the ideas of the PME? So this is an interesting aspect of the story. I think on the one hand, what's fascinating, right back to the contradictions and complexities, I talk about the ways in, uh, in the book, um, many of these women actually rejected, outrightly rejected Christianity. And in the case of Celia Jane Allen, you know, Celia Jane Allen was an organizer in the peace movement of Ethiopia. The peace movement of Ethiopia, according to their constitution and certainly the way that they uh, ran the organization under Gordon's leadership, they openly denounced Christianity and said that they embraced uh, Islam as the true faith of Black people. And that's the way they phrased it. So Celia Jane Allen leaves Chicago uh, in, in the late 1930s. Uh, she's originally from Mississippi, but you know she had relocated to Chicago. She, she decides to leave Chicago to go back to Mississippi to organize uh, primarily Black sharecroppers. What's fascinating is that when she gets there, um, she ultimately discards uh, quickly uh, any, any kind of reference to Islam, 
doesn't exist. She shows up and the, one of the first things that she does is she goes to a black minister and she goes to a black minister and begins to organize through black churches. That's certainly um, a pivotal moment, I think, it, uh, and certainly a, an important part of the story because on the one hand, it is it certainly it captures, as you say, the crucial role that black churches um, played in this moment uh, as a space for organizing, for political um, activism. Uh, but also too, it speaks to the ways in which these women I think were skillful um, and strategic in their politics in that they understood that they needed to adopt their their ideas in some ways and also that I adopt their, their um, practices um, to fit the, the local settings in which they worked. And so when they were in Chicago, they were very willing and, and open uh, um, to, to challenge Christianity and to express their commitment to Islam. And they were drawing on the ideas of Noble Jurali, and, uh, for example. But when they went to organize in the South, they were, were skillful to center Christianity uh, and to work within uh, this space, to work with Black ministers, to organize within churches because they understood uh, how value, you know, how significant these spaces were for for Black Southerners, and they didn't want to uh, alienate anyone. And so they quickly sort of changed their tune uh, in order to um, advance the movement. Now, what's uh, re- interesting is they're trying to get people to sign this uh, Greater Liberia Bill petition. Now, that's, this is something that's going to go to the U.S. Congress. So they're going to have to have a congressman, senators, somebody with some power in Congress to champion or to uh, kind of usher this, this bill through Congress. And it was just really interesting that the people that they ended up aligning with in order to, to get this done were not, you know, liberal, uh, progressive senators. It was these white supremacists, people who who did not be, who really agree with them. Yes, you need to leave, which is in how they. It's amazing. Uh, I, I thought that that was just astounding because they, the women were having to perform both racially and as women to appeal to these white men who were not who were racist to kind of hey we're on the same page here. Please talk about that. Yeah, this is one aspect of the uh, the story that frustrated me in many ways, um, to be honest. I think, and of course, you know, as historians, we're oftentimes not sure what we'll find when we go to, to do research. And I remember um, just being astounded in so many ways by these kinds of collaborations. I mean, and to be fair, I mean, I certainly know, I certainly knew that these kinds of collaborations uh, existed. And so, you know, Marcus Garvey, for example, had at one point reached out to someone from uh, the, the, the KKK. So that was, that people know this, it, it was on record. Uh, and so to an extent, it wasn't shocking, but I think by the 1930s and certainly into the 40s, I was uh, a bit taken aback by how how boldly these women pursued these collaborations uh, with with people who were simply, you know, who who were just um, by and large uh, disliked um, by other black people. I mean, just a quick example: someone like Theodore Bilbo, someone who many um, black activists 
would not have even wanted to be in the same room with uh, because he was so uh, openly racist, um, did not hold back on, on his um, negative views of Black people. And so to see women, Black nationalist women, forging these kinds of collaborations, writing uh, someone like Bilbo, trying to work with someone like Bilbo to advance a bill, that was um, an interesting uh, to interesting um, experience. I mean, certainly in the archives. And one, one of the things that I wanted to do in the book, uh, which I, I which I hope I've done well, is is to explain why is to not necessarily. I mean, we can certainly make a judgment and say, you know, this was a good thing or a bad thing. But more importantly, what I wanted to do was to explain, to get to the bottom of it, to to say what would, how did these women. Um, justify, if you will, these kinds of collaborations. Uh, and I talk about right the, their own justifications and the ways in which they thought that it was strategic because they figured that even if someone like Bilbo was um, openly racist and, and even though he supported the movement, not because he had any uh, positive thought about Black people, but simply because he wanted them to leave the country, they would still be able to use his support to advance the cause. And it was all about how do we um, accomplish our goals? And they were willing to do many things, right, to accomplish their goals. And one of those things was forming alliances with people um, who were certainly questionable, um, like Bilbo and like many other white supremacists who I talk about in the book. What struck me was they really believed in their cause and they were willing to do make a devil's bargain if, if it get them what they felt was so important because they dedicated their whole life to this process. Now, with Bilbo, what was uh, some of the things you talk about is, you know, the letters, the language that these women would use in addressing him. And he was very differential, very, like, grateful. Um, yes, you know, very uh, pleading. Uh, it, and I'm like, it was just yes. painful to read. You know, I um, as we're talking about this, I was thinking about a letter that one of the women wrote in 1939. Uh, it, and it was a letter in response to uh, several activists were criticizing these kinds of collaborations, you know, rightfully so. And they were saying, you know, why are we reaching out to um, this racist senator, uh, even though we know we want to advance the cause of Black immigration, it's a problem to form these kinds of collaborations. And Minnie Marlena Gordon, who we've talked about earlier, uh, she wrote this interesting letter to one of her supporters, and she explained it um, in a way that struck me. She said, when we have to depend on the crocodile to cross the stream, we must pat him on the back until we get to the other side. And that phrase, um, really stays with me when I think about why these women formed those collaborations. And of course, like I said, we can we can certainly critique those collaborations. We can certainly point out the limitations of those collaborations. And I would argue that those co collaborations certainly did add uh, help uh, to alienate the movement even further. So it didn't necessarily help in the long run. But for her, it was about thinking strategically. It was about forming alliances that in her mind would, would move things forward, uh, even though clearly uh, controversial. 
And and in the book, I ended up having to um, rely a bit on you know performance theory to almost get to the heart of what these women were doing and why they were doing it and and why they were uh, speaking in a deferential tone and why they were um, using hyperboles and I mean all of these things matter. And I spent a lot of time trying to um, explain and and carefully analyze their writings so that readers could at least see as much as possible the strategy that was going, that was behind it, right? The strategy um, in how these women presented themselves. Uh, Because in the end, what I'm ultimately arguing here is we need to take these women seriously as activists, but as thinkers. We need to take them seriously as intellectuals. We need to not imagine that they were doing things haphazardly, that they were just going with the whim. No, we need to, to see the ways in which they were they were thinking it through. Whether we agree or not, uh, these were decisions that were ultimately shaped by a number of different factors, and they were trying to be strategic, and they were trying to be careful with, with how they advanced you know, the movement, whether or not it was successful is a whole nother story, but it's about seeing them um, as, as intellectuals and, and taking their ideas seriously in this moment. There's no doubt. I mean, I, I no doubt that these women were strategic about what they were doing based on what you've written, that they were very, they were do they knew what they were doing. They were not dupes. Uh, but I was, I was wondering about what this bill, this greater Liberia bill actually made it into some kind of debate or discussion. And what came back was a, a modified bill uh, that really kind of said, okay, you can go to Liberia, but uh, the United States is going to sort of like be an imperial colonial power in Liberia and control what happens when you get there. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so this is the 1939 uh, Greater Liberia Bill. And one of the things I argue in the book is that, so this bill was introduced um, by uh, Theodore Bilbo, who I've mentioned uh, previously. And the women who I talk about in the book were were critical critical for making this bill uh, even possible. They had worked so hard right, for so many years organizing. Um, and then, of course, I mentioned earlier the petition that they wrote um, to FDR in the early uh, 1930s. All of that culminated into this 1939 bill that was supposed to provide uh, federal support uh, for these women, um, really for anyone in the movement who was interested. The idea was that the U.S. government would would provide funds to make it possible for them to relocate to Liberia. And, and the bill has all of these uh, intricate um, details. And part of what's troubling, as I lay out in the book, is that in the process of writing the bill, not surprisingly, when it goes back to the limitations of forming um these kinds of collaborations with white supremacists. So you, here you have these women who are pushing the bill because they're imagining that it will lead to um, a, an autonomous black nation state. They're thinking this is a, a strategic move for black um, political self-determination. But in turn, Bilbo pushes uh, for a particular clause in the bill that that allows, that grants the United States uh, essentially um, control uh, in a way that the women didn't even imagine. So one of the things that the bill includes is, for example, um, you know, U- U.S. representatives uh, who would be expected 
to to go to Liberia and oversee uh, this new group of um, immigrants uh, to oversee the process of of setting up uh, in Liberia and to control uh, the communities uh, in which these uh, people lived. So, like you said, what was meant to be a move uh, for to bolster Black political self determination then becomes uh, a medium or avenue to ultimately reinforce. Um, U.S. imperialism in this in this particular moment, and that again um, really speaks to the complexities and the contradictions of Black nationalist politics in this moment. And I talk about the ways in which uh, some of the women were not in full support of this, and they certainly pointed out um, the, the problems with this particular clause, and they pointed out the problems with the Greater Liberia Bill. But in the end they uh, just conceded and they just let it go and decided, well, at least we'll get the funds to leave the country. As I said, it didn't necessarily, necessarily work. It ultimately um, fell flat, but, but at least their efforts did in fact lead to a, a discussion um, and almost <laughs> the passage of a bill in 1939. With this uh, Greater Liberia Bill, what was interesting about it to me was even in the 19th century, we talk a lot about in the 19th century how uh, the uh, colonization society had an effort to, uh, you know, to have uh, African-Americans go back to Africa, but they never got this far. This is 20th century that, that we're talking about. And I'm like, this is a pretty big thing here that, that it got that they got that far. They got it into Congress to at least talk about it. Exactly. And that's actually and one of the things that I um, try to emphasize in the book, right, is the ways in which, uh, and I mentioned earlier that when you, when you talk about the Universal Negro Improvement Association in the early 20th century, uh, you know, they were certainly making efforts to get to Liberia. They were certainly trying uh, to um, lead a, a mass movement uh, for people of African descent who were interested and willing uh, to leave the United States or leave other parts um you know, other, wherever they resided to ultimately um, go to Liberia where they would establish a black nation state. It didn't work, right? I mean, of course it, it didn't work, but these women uh, in the thirties, uh, in the forties, I mean, as I talk about in the book, even after the 1939 Greater Liberia Bill fails, then 1940s, a group of uh, black nationalist women tried to revive it yet again and, and just keep trying and trying, but it speaks to what I said earlier, the ways in which these ideas are powerful, the ways in which these ideas continue to uh, to shape um, Black politics, even after uh, organizations uh, fail to accomplish certain goals and even after individuals fail to accomplish certain goals. And so this is a, a, a good example of how these women take uh, some of these ideas uh, from the early 1920s and, and ultimately carry it into the 30s and even into the 40s and 50s and even as the you know the figures change, the you know the names change. It goes from this person to the other person. But this idea of how do we make it possible to leave the United States? How do we make it to Liberia? That that question continues to come up time and time again. And and these women try a range of different strategies in hopes of accomplishing their goal. Uh, the reason I wanted to ask you the reason they went to Theodora Bilbo is that okay first. Were there no other senators? No one was in support of this. No liberal or conservative or anybody was in support of this. What is their relationship to the broader civil rights movement? You've got civil rights organizations that are well-established, and you talk about how they just did, just thought it was ridiculous, I guess, 
um, how do they fit with the greater, how do they fit into the story of the broader, greater uh, freedom movement in the United States? There's certainly a lot of tension, and I just want to talk about the class tensions in the book, uh, which was evident, but, you know, more to the point of um, the relationship to mainstream organizations, you know, they were certainly marginalized. Uh, What's fascinating, of course, is one of the things that I noticed, too, in writing the narrative. uh, So just as as an example, 1939, Greater Liberia Bill, that's a pivotal moment, certainly for for Black nationalist history. What I found interesting was as I was going through the newspapers, I was going through all these Black newspapers uh, to see how they covered this particular moment. Not surprisingly, I found many cases where there was simply no mention of the bill. It was as if it never happened. Uh, And that, of course, is intentional too, right? I mean, it speaks to the limitations um, of using, you know, newspapers. As we know, all all sources have their biases and limitations as well as their strengths. But in this case, it was about the ways in which, you know, some activists, um, some Black leaders simply decided we're not even going to take this seriously. We're not even going to take it seriously enough to cover it um, in the newspaper. So that was one thing. But but then other people were very vocal about their um, rejection of these ideas. And so there were all these interesting uh, cases where I found articles. I mean, there was one case uh, in the Baltimore Afro-American newspaper where someone just came out and said, listen, these people who are pushing this particular bill, um, in, in his words, he says, these are misfits in a complex economic system, you know, and he goes on to say, these are foolish people, they have no, you know, clear sense of thought, I mean, they, they, they don't even understand that they are American citizens and have no business being involved in an effort to leave the country, let alone forming these kinds of strange collaborations with people who ultimately hate them. I mean, so so people were very critical. I talk about leaders in the NWCP, for an example, openly denouncing some of these women's efforts. And so there's certainly lots of tensions. These women did not um, have a, a sort of easy, exper- you know, easy experience. One of the striking things I talk about in the book is the ways that they were marginalized on multiple levels. So marginalized, um, you know, as Black women, um, you know, but also they were so they were dealing with external pressures, but they're also dealing with internal pressures, right? And within the black community, they were finding themselves marginalized even within because they held views that were simply not accepted. I mean, these views are still to this very day uh, the kinds of views that are not necessarily uh, embraced by the mainstream, right? And so they struggled uh, to find a place, so to speak. Um, in the movement. And of course, that's not surprising why that many of their stories were left out um, of the history books. And and for many people, this is the first time they've encountered the women I talk about and certainly the groups I talk about. This is the first time many people would have encountered them um, because it wasn't a mainstream story by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, it's almost like they weren't even giving the dignity of being called radicals, you know, political radicals. They were, they were stupid. That's what it seemed like they the and, and they weren't even given the respect of, oh, they're just political radicals that we disagree with. We're going to talk about it. We're just not even going to talk about it because it's ridiculous. And, okay, so now these these women are doing all this in the decades, but there's a lot of things going on. You've got the Depression. You've got the New Deal, World War II, the emerging civil rights movement. They're, they're still staying with their vision and their message during 
a time when the country is experiencing vast number of changes. And, and then you, you, we get to the 1960s, and, you know, throughout this book, I'm thinking, oh, this sounds a lot like what Black Power was saying. I know Black Power wasn't saying about going to Africa. That was not their deal. But the, that fervor vision of, of, of Black nationalism, of Black pride, of Black self, economic self-determination, of, uh, of having their own place uh, within the United States culturally or economically. Um, so how come in, this, in the history of Black power, these women and these ideas have not really been given play? I mean, this is, uh, this is really a surprising book. Yeah, and there are several reasons for that. I mean, I think one of the things that I was... Um, I found fascinating in in doing the research. Uh, I thought initially, before I even got to the 1960s, and you know, I had, was collecting all this information. I thought that by the time we got to um, at least late 1950s, early 60s, that I would see these women um, necessarily, you know, coming together with, let's say, groups like the Nation of Islam, as an example. Um, what I found surprising in many ways was how critical they were of groups like the Nation of Islam. And I remember uh, there was one instance, and, and I quote it in the book, where one of the women, she's talking about um, particularly the nation, and, and she's saying, you know, these are not real Black nationalists. And I remember thinking, well, th that's an interesting observation. I wonder, you know, I wanted to know more more about it, and and kept digging to to find out more about what these women thought. And part of what happened is for many of these women, because many of these black nationalist groups that we talk about, you know, in the '60s, uh, because many of these groups, by and large, did not endorse um, the idea of leaving the United States entirely. I mean, so many of them, so some of them certainly. Uh, embrace territorial separatism. So that is, you know, um, separate uh, Black spaces within the United States. But for these women, uh, th the fact that some of these um, activists did not endorse uh, Black immigration, they felt like that was um, ultimately the evidence that they were not real Black nationalists, that they didn't see how a Black nationalist activist could maintain a position that ultimately meant that Black people would stay on U.S. soil. So that was a fascinating departure, if you will, ideologically for these women. Uh, and, and of course, we also see a shift uh, in, in terms of what these groups would focus on. So groups like the Peace Movement of Ethiopia or even the UNIA, uh, while they did not necessarily... Um, express uh, any sort of public uh, rejection of the idea of armed self-defense, armed self-defense was not for them as central um, in the way that they presented their message about what Black nationalism meant. Uh, certainly not in the 20s, uh, not in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, but when we get to uh, the sort of proper you know, Black power movement, what we find uh, is an emphasis on armed self-defense, certainly someone like Robert F. Williams um, emphasizing armed self-defense as we move on to uh, you know uh, the Black Panther Party as another example. And so all that is to say, I think that last chapter really centers 
how um, Black nationalists thought, even as I talk about the ways in which there are these core ideas. Uh, Black nationalist thought was certainly not monolithic, and it certainly changed across time and also across space. And we see those changes when we get to uh, the Black Power era, because we see the ways in which the women who I'm talking about, that generation of activists, they're not necessarily in sync with the new generation of activists who uh, we identify as Black nationalists. Okay. Uh, Keisha, I just have one more question. Um, what's the takeaway for the audience? What do, you, what do you want people to, when they read this book, what is the one thing you want them to remember? So I certainly want people to um, really think criti- you know, critically about how central women were um, and continue to be uh, in national and global politics. And that's really the heart of it. Um, but I would say to not just Black women um, in general, but, but also to what I hope people uh, take from the book is how important uh, working poor Black women were to national global politics. I think one of the one of the central um, aspects of the book is is that I try to really um, emphasize how these women, who in many cases had limited formal education, did not necessarily even have um, a way to, to you know to pay their bills. I mean, they're struggling to make ends meet, but all of that didn't matter so much in that, you know, even despite the, the challenges that they were facing personally and, and even within uh, their communities, they were committed to the cause of Black liberation, not just in the U.S., but across the globe. And that, for me, I think is a, certainly inspirational. I think I would hope that as people read the book, that they would be inspired by these women's stories, that they would see, right, the limitations, to be sure, but that they would be inspired by how women with so few um tangible resources and financial and otherwise, how they were so committed to the cause of liberation and how they tried just about everything to make uh, their dreams a reality. Thank you, uh, Keisha Blaine. Thank you for having me. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. This has been a special edition in collaboration with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. This is your host, Lillian Barger.